From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Westerners are braced for wildfires and the threats to life and property from the flames. But what about the smoke? There's still a lot to learn about what's in it as it wafts thousands of miles. A massive research project by land and air is getting underway. What we will do is we will measure all the ingredients of smoke. Plus, a new strategy to corral wildfires before they get out of control. Then Colorado celebrates the U.S. Women's World Cup victory. A perfumer tries to capture Colorado in a bottle. I was really trying to evoke the entirety of walking through a Colorado meadow into the forest. And Colorado wonders about canals all over the state. This historic trail that was built to bring irrigation water to farmers way back in the 1800s is still here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The wet weather may temporarily wash away fears of wildfire, but the general trend of hotter, drier conditions with climate change means the threat is still very real. In fact, we're looking at scorching temperatures later this week. It's why we're going to talk about wildfire smoke. Prolonged exposure can cause asthma, even premature death. But there's still a lot to learn about the smoke itself. And air quality forecasts leave a lot to be desired. This is research Karsten Warnicke is taking on. He's an air quality scientist in Boulder. Karsten, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Most people flee wildfires, but I understand your team will fly quite close to gather air samples. What is it like to fly into smoke? It will be very exciting, I'm sure. And it also will be very smelly in there, too. I think we've all seen those pictures of wildfires raging. What we're going to do is we fly into the smoke. So we actually fly downwind of those fires and through the smoke, where you probably won't be able to see through. But we are going to analyze what's in the smoke and what's happening to it once it's emitted and transported downwind. But the smoke gets into the cabin. Are you in some sort of mask? No, we have made all the calculations that the exposure levels that we'll have in the cabins are not dangerous uh, in, on any terms of standards. Huh. It's more like sitting next to a campfire that we'll, we'll experience there. Ah, without the s'mores, I suppose. Uh, without the s'mores. Now, this has to require a pretty particular pilot who can fly through essentially an environment where there's little visibility. Yes, yeah, since the pilots can't see through, they can't fly on visual, so they have to request an airspace. And we're the only airplane in this area where we fly through the smoke, so there's no way we can have any collisions with other planes or, or the ground there. Okay, that's comforting. <laughs> You're not just attacking this from the air. Uh, this project includes a lot of sophisticated technology that's also on the ground. Help us understand all the ways you'll be measuring smoke. Yeah, we have a lot of assets in, in the field this summer. We start with uh, four different aircraft. One is a high-flying aircraft that simulates satellites. Then we have the NASA DC-8 aircraft, which is the largest flying laboratory in the world. Then we have two smaller NOAA Twin Otter aircraft that uh, will be flying at night as well. In addition, we have also assets on the ground. We have mobile laboratories that will measure the smoke in valleys in the western U.S. and sometimes in urban areas where the smoke is going to. We'll also have drones and uh, we'll have a lot of uh, modelers and forecasters helping us out. 
you and other scientists will be based out of Boise. Uh, yes. But presumably with any number of wildfires raging across the West at a given time, how are you going to choose which ones to fly to? We'll have uh, several criteria for looking at the fires. The first one is how large is the fire and is the smoke plume transported high up so that we can easily fly it with our aircraft. The other one will be, is the fire being fought? If there's activity in the area with lots of other planes, we try to stay away from that. We, we certainly do not want to get in the way of firefighting activities. Makes sense. You know, what's remarkable about wildfire smoke are the distances. I remember when there were fires burning across the West, even if they weren't immediately in Denver. My goodness, you could still see the smoke here. Yes, you can see the smoke miles, thousands of miles away sometimes. For example, earlier this year, there were fires burning in Alberta, Canada, and the smoke plume was transported along the East Coast, even to New York and Philadelphia, Baltimore. You could see the smoke, and it was so intense that you could even smell it at these long distances. And you're trying to figure out more about what's in that smoke that can travel so far and be so visible. Yes. So what we will do is we will measure all the ingredients of smoke. We have very modern, new equipment, the best basically you can get in terms of measurements of the composition of the smoke, and then also how the smoke is transformed while it's moving downwind. We all hear about ozone as harmful gas, for example, yeah. and ozone is produced while the smoke plume is traveling downwind. And we want to understand what are the emissions that causes this ozone production that is harmful to people. Ah. And in addition, particles are also very harmful. Yeah, so the idea here is that there is a kind of dual threat. One is the creation of ozone. We're really familiar with that along the front range, of course, yes. uh, because of the soup that's created by emissions from cars and oil and gas. That's one issue. And then you're saying yes. the actual particulate, the, these fine pieces that are floating in the air present their own health risks. Yes, when I think of, of what burns in a fire, I think of trees, of course, but mm -hmm. I, I also think of homes, and that means furniture and insulation, and, and I gather that's reflected in everything you're seeing in wildfire smoke. Yes, that's correct. So there have been basically no data so far on what smoke looks like from these type of buildings in the larger ambient atmosphere. So we, of course, want to be a little cognizant about this. We're trying to improve models and forecasts for the people, but we also want to make sure that people are not offended by us measuring these burning homes or their livelihood, their homes. Hmm. And hopefully we can convince people with our science that we're doing that this is really very valuable for everybody. What do you think public health officials could glean from what you'll learn this summer? So what we will be able to do is after this campaign, we will be able to improve the forecast models. And the forecast models is what health officials are often using to warn people to change their habits for the next day. For example, if you have a forecast that says there's a lot of smoke in the area this coming weekend, you might want to think of not having your uh, baseball match outside. So health officials really need to know this information that we're providing and really improve the forecasting models that they are using. Okay, so you're flying into fires in the West based out of Boise for the first part of this wildfire research. Yes. Then in August, you move from Boise to Salina, Kansas to study mm. a different kind of smoke, and it's a smoke from agricultural fires. What is an ag fire and how are these different? Ag fires are used to manage land. 
And there is a trend in the U.S. to really use uh, prescribed fires to manage forests, uh, even in the West as well. But most practices are done in the East. Mm -hmm. These are often the agricultural fires are fields being cleared by the farmers and the leftover stubble gets burned to clear the field for use again. So one thing that people don't realize that the land area that's burned from prescribed and agricultural fires is actually much, much larger than the area that's burned by wildfires. The total emissions from wildfires is still larger because there's a lot more uh, vegetation and material burned in the wildfires because they are much more intense. But the area is really dominated by the prescribed fires. And is it that the health effects of those are mysterious as well? They are quite mysterious for several reasons. These small fires are really hard to detect. Usually we use satellites to detect fires, but the small fires are sometimes too small to be detected and often are uh, masked by clouds that the satellites don't even see them at all. And the smoke impact from those can be much larger than we estimate currently. Fascinating. But th this has been a practice for generations to do these kind of ag fires. Yes. Uh, are, are you saying that this data might point to the fact that this isn't the right approach or what? That's not uh, what I would say, because if you talk to forest management and land management people, they say, no, we need those fires. We need more fires than we have right now to get the ecosystem back to what it should be. So I don't think it's the wrong approach. You just have to know when to burn the fire so that the smoke plume, for example, if you burn in Florida, blows out over the water and can't impact any people in the area. It makes me wonder what your relationship is to fire. Like, obviously, wildfires are a part of the natural ecosystem. They're also destructive. Um, yes. How do you view fire? My origins are actually from measurement of urban air quality. And we have done so good in urban air quality improvements over the past decades that the only areas where the air quality is actually not improving is in fire-prone areas where you have smoke from wildfires. This is what brought me on the air quality side. And now over the past few years, I've learned how important fires are for the ecosystem. We need fires and we need more fires than we have. We have been fighting fires now for decades and the fuels that have been built up because of that are really intense. And it is estimated that until the mid of this century, we will have to live with fires and more fires. So this campaign and my work here is really preparing us and being able to predict those fires properly over the, over the next decades to come. Karsten, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Karsten Warnicke is an air quality scientist affiliated with CU Boulder, and he's conducting a massive wildfire smoke study this summer. Some of the largest wildfires last year didn't occur in forests, but on open rangeland. Think grassy prairies and shrubbery. Well, now the Trump administration is exploring what's being called a grand experiment to curb sagebrush fires across the West. Bobby McGill is a reporter with Bloomberg Environment. He looked into whether there is scientific support for this approach, which we'll talk about. Hi, Bobby. Hi, how are you? Doing well. In brief, what is this grand experiment? Help us understand it. So the Bureau of Land Management is proposing to clear a network of 11,000 miles of wildfire fuel breaks in six Great Basin states, Utah, Nevada, California, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. And the idea is that these fuel breaks would help wildfire fighters to gain uh, a bit of an upper hand on some of these rangeland fires in these states. And um, 
it would it would basically the, the theory is that that these fuel breaks would help uh, reduce the size of the fire. Um, it, it wouldn't stop the fires, but they would uh, they would help to con- control them and uh, reduce the 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 flame length. Let me say that uh, none of this would happen in Colorado, but uh, indeed Utah, an adjacent state. Uh, this this might have some effect on, on northwest Colorado, for example, near the border. 11,000 miles of clearing. I mean, that sounds like a huge project. Well, to be, to be uh, clear, this is something that would happen over a period of years. Um, it's just in a proposal stage right now. Um, and these, these fuel breaks would be up to 500 feet wide. They would be built on existing rights-of-way, which, which is like which is small, uh, say, gravel roads or, or small two-track roads up into the, up into the sagebrush. Mm. And it wouldn't just be sagebrush. It would be pinon juniper woodlands and, uh, and obviously sagebrush as well. Is there evidence that this would, in fact, help corral fires? Well, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence from firefighters that, who, who have seen fire, uh, fuel breaks work. And fuel breaks have been, have been built throughout the West for a long time. Okay. But uh, an 11,000-mile network of fuel breaks is, is, an, is a new um, proposal. About 6,000 miles of fuel breaks exist in the West, or in those six states right now in, in the Great Basin. Um, and it, while firefighters say that they've seen these work, uh, the issue now is that we have um, larger and larger wildfires burning in, in the Great Basin. And uh, a, lot of this, a lot of these fires are fueled by increasingly volatile conditions, uh, brought about by climate change. They're caused by climate change, but they're, they're, the, the conditions are, are worsened by climate change. And um, these, these fires, when they, when they burn in such intense, especially windy conditions, fuel breaks, the scientists say, don't necessarily stop the, the fires or even slow them down. They'll just jump the fuel break. Interesting. So this might be a solution for a different time, one where there was less volatility. Uh, this makes me wonder, is this a subtle recognition uh, on the Trump administration's part that climate change is a thing? Uh, in other words, if they're proposing a, a huge new plan, which again has been called by uh, others in the administration a grand experiment, uh, are they doing so because they realize that things are getting drier, hotter, and wildfires are getting sort of crazier? Well, the Bureau of Land Management is definitely recognizing that conditions are changing. Um, they're not calling it climate change, and you can't attribute any specific fire to climate change. Um, you can you can possibly say that some of the conditions were were worsened by climate change, perhaps, but it's not clear that this is a direct admission by the by the Trump administration that that you know they have to react to climate change. Um, a lot of scientists within the Trump administration, of course, uh, are are you know producing solid uh, science that that de- that demonstrates the impacts of climate change um, and uh, makes projections. So you know it's various different agencies within the within the Trump administration say different things about climate change, but but the White House is not necessarily um, you know admitting by any means that this is that this is uh, you know something that should be done because of climate change. You have painted a bit of a picture for us of these wildfire breaks, which could be, as we said, 11,000 miles long under this proposal, some of them 500 feet wide. How do you go about doing that? What are the sort of brass tacks? Is it a question of, like, bulldozers or what? Well, it could be. Um, They're also talking about using herbicides, in other words, chemically treating 
uh, or chemically uh, killing some of the vegetation within these um, within these fuel breaks or as they as they clear them. Um, but they're also talking about using controlled burns and grazing and uh, mechanical, um, you know, mechanical methods of, of removing them, such as like, you know, the, this process called chaining. Uh, where they, where these machines sort of drag lar- a large chain across the the sagebrush and and essentially rips it up. Huh. Um, but there are, there are a number of mechanical methods of doing so. And, and this would clearly be on public land, uh, not private land. That's correct. This is Bureau of Land Management uh, public land in in these six states, and um, you know these these aren't exactly. You know, these won't necessarily built in, be built in, in all straight lines. They're sort of like this patchwork and sort of this network of, of uh, and some of them are, are, you know, highly concentrated in, in one region like uh, northeast Utah and northeast uh, Idaho, for example. Uh, I think what's fascinating about your reporting, Bobby McGill, is that there are some scientists who say this could actually make things worse. Uh, how, how is that the case in their minds? Basically, what they're saying is, if you remove um, if you remove the sagebrush, and you allow um, for uh, it, basically you're clearing out the landscape so that um, invasive species such as cheatgrass and other grasses could could populate through the area, and it actually could could ex- could spread beyond the boundaries of the fuel break. Um, and those those invasive species are are very flammable, and some scientists say that that they would actually increase the fire risk. And you would have like this conveyor belt, as one scientist called it, a conveyor belt of fire as these, um, as these fuel breaks, uh, as the invasive species within the fuel breaks burn. Um, so it, it really could uh, potentially increase the, the risk. Okay, so this will clearly be the subject of more conversation. I gather some public input as well. How soon could uh, a massive network of fire breaks and even more expansive one. We should say there are fire breaks already, as you've mentioned, but how soon could something like this take place in just the last few seconds here? Well, it's unclear. The, the BLM won't tell me exactly what their time frame is, but uh, they are taking public comment now. This is, this is a draft proposal. The meeting dates for, or the, they're holding public meetings beginning today um, in Eastern Oregon, and they're going to hold public meetings around the six states. Um, and uh, they're hoping to finalize this plan by uh, 2020. Bobby McGill writes for Bloomberg Environment. He spent the first decade of his career, though, covering public lands for newspapers in Colorado and New Mexico. And I'll tweet in just a few seconds here a link to his full article at CPR Warner. Colorado is at the center of a campaign to celebrate a century of women's suffrage. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports from Washington, D.C. on what this will take. The Subcommittee on National Parks, Forests, and Public Lands will now come to order. The subcommittee subcommittee will come to order. Before we get started today... The House and the Senate both have held hearings on a bill that would mark the 100th anniversary of a woman's right to vote by installing a sculpture by a Colorado artist a couple of blocks away from the U.S. Capitol building. Boulder Representative Joe Neguse has been heading the legislative effort in the House. He told the committee that as a father of a young girl, his support for this measure is personal. As a proud father, uh, I want to ensure that uh, her and every girl growing up alongside her feel represented, uh, empowered, and are assured of the fundamental role uh, that they play in our society. Nagus believes this monument is an idea whose time has come. Uh, The fact that there is no monument in Washington, D.C., no outdoor monument to the women's suffragette movement, uh, to me, I think is something that we felt like needs to be addressed. 
It took a lot of work just to get to this point. As Jody Shattuck McNally, president and co-founder of the Every Word We Utter Monument Board, explains, she and artist Jane DeDecker came to Washington, D.C. last October and started knocking on doors. We knocked on 97 out of 100 um, doors of the Senate offices. You see, according to the Commemorative Works Act, to donate a statue to the National Park Service takes, well, an act of Congress. They talked to anyone and everyone they could about their idea, including most of Colorado's delegation. The bill was one of the first that freshman Representative Nagus introduced in January. Shadak McNally is optimistic about the measure's chances. We're very um, grateful and thrilled that we've um, made it this far because only about 1 to 2 percent of bills make it this far in the process. And she has good reason to be optimistic. It's a bill with bipartisan support and comes at no cost to the taxpayer. Money to create the monument will come from private donations. Senator Cory Gardner, who's sponsoring the legislation in the Senate along with Senator Michael Bennett, says he's talking to his leadership about bringing the bill forward. And uh, we're going to keep pressing him to get this done. And, uh, you know, this authorization I think is important. I've seen and visited with the uh, the, the artist. Uh, this will be an incredible opportunity. For Gardner, it's fitting that the entire Colorado delegation supports this bill. In 1893, Colorado was the first state to approve women's suffrage by popular vote. And that history, that journey, needs to be recognized. Uh, the incredible work, sacrifice, dedication of so many generations of women who gave themselves and empowered this country to deliver on the franchise. But for artist Decker, it's not just about honoring the past. It's about inspiring future generations. I just feel like it's we really um, need to show our younger women that if they speak, that they could make a difference. Because getting the vote for women was a decades-long effort, Decker wanted to showcase the different generations, the women who fought for the right to vote but never had the opportunity, to the women who did get to cast those first votes. The monument features Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Sojourner Truth, as well as later generations of the movement, Harriet Stanton Blatch, Alice Paul, and Ida B. Wells. Anna Lehman, National Events Director for the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, testified in support of the monument in the House. She summed it up like this. This statue epitomizes the very tenets of the suffrage movement, tenets on which our nation was founded, freedom, peaceful protest, and millions of diverse voices coming together as one to create change. There is still a ways to go. The bills need to be voted out of the committees before it even has a chance at a vote on the floor of the Senate or the House, not to mention signed by the president. The women in Colorado lawmakers are giving themselves plenty of time. They hope to cross that finish line by the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, August 2020. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News, Washington. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. Still to come, Colorado celebrates the Women's World Cup victory. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News. Life can be pretty complicated for people who have marijuana-related offenses on their criminal record from before legalization. I had sold weed to survive, and now these rich white guys that hadn't lived the same life that I did were able to come in and really capitalize. On the latest episode of On Something, what happens to the people who may be wondering why they're still on the wrong side of the law, even though the law has changed? Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now, let's listen to cheers on both sides of the Atlantic as the U.S. women won the Soccer World Cup. This first burst comes from fans gathered in Boulder at Rayback Collective, a roundup of food trucks. 
Meanwhile, 5,000 miles away at the stadium in Lyon, France, the U.S. victory over Holland sounded like this. Okay, that man subtly chanting USA is John Daly, CPR's health reporter. He's also our resident soccer nut. He's been in France watching this tournament unfold, and he joined me right after the U.S.'s crowning win. Yeah, I'm in the stadium, and we're kind of up in the upper section. The game ended just a little while ago, and then they had the trophy celebration, and the team kind of jogged around the field and waved to the fans. You know, it was just a marvelous moment and a great way for the U.S. women's national team to cap off what's been an absolutely spectacular World Cup for them. And how cool that this happened on Independence Day weekend. You were sending photos (laughs) of people clad in the red, white, and blue. Oh, yeah. It was very much of an American-friendly crowd here. A lot of very enthusiastic Dutch fans here, and then there were fans from all over Europe. But I would say the stadium was maybe... More than half American supporters. Any other Colorado folks? You know, I have run into some Colorado folks, absolutely. Uh, Other families with kids that play soccer mostly, or kind of soccer nuts. I want to ask about two Coloradans in particular, Lindsay Horan from Golden and Mallory Pugh of Highlands Ranch, who are on this 23-member squad. How did they do in in the course of these games? You know, they both did well, although they didn't play a ton Mallory Pugh played in the first couple of games and scored a goal. And Lindsey Horan also got a goal and uh, and a critical assist in the game against England, arguably the most important pass of the entire tournament because she set up Alex Morgan for the winning goal against England in the semifinal. So uh, she played a, a pretty critical role, but neither of them played today in the final. It's just such a deep team with so many great players. So, indeed, you've been watching these games with your family, uh, including your daughter. She's a competitive soccer player herself. Is she there? She's here, yeah. Do you want to turn the phone? What's her name? Julia. Julia. Do you want to turn the phone over to Julia? Okay, yeah, let me put her on. Here's Ryan Warner, Julia. Hi, Julia. Hi. As a player, I wonder how you have uh, been experiencing these games. Um, I think that a lot of girls soccer players my age don't really think that they can make a career out of what they love and i think these women are pushing for that to be possible and it gives me a lot of hope for women's soccer as a sport and that girls my age can continue to grow up and become professional soccer players like they can how old are you julie i'm 15 but i turned 16 a couple days Ah, okay. Well, a, a cool way to celebrate a, a birthday in advance. Okay, thanks so much. Will yeah, you, that's a great. Will you hand the phone back to your dad for a second? <laughs> yeah. So, John, how have French fans responded to the team? I'm curious. You know, what's interesting with the U.S. team is that I've talked to a number of French soccer fans, football fans. And, you know, we're talking about guys that we talk to in the cab or the Uber or, you know, the vendor uh, at the farmer's market. And when we chat about uh, the U.S. team, they are very complimentary, and they say things like Trey Fort, you know, very strong, or Formidable. You know, they are connoisseurs of everything here in France, right? Wine and cheese and good football, and they know good soccer when they see it. This World Cup has broken ratings records for women's soccer. Nike says more USA women's home jerseys have sold on Nike.com this season than any other women or men, actually. You know, at the same time, 
this uh, U.S. women's team is fighting U.S. soccer for equal pay or fair pay and to be treated with the same respect, I think, as they see it as men. What, what do you think this win means for that fight? It's got to help, right? I mean, let's say, Ryan, that they had come into this tournament and not done so well. Let's say they got knocked out in one of the earlier rounds or against France or England or something like that. Well, you know, they wouldn't be able to claim, hey, we are the best in the world. Well, now they've won this tournament again the fourth time and the fourth out of eight times it's been played. I think that just makes their case that much stronger that they can go in the court of law and the court of public opinion and say, we are the best. We deserve to be compensated at a higher level and treated better than than we are. So shortly after all the cheers we heard in the introduction, there were boos. Fascinating moment. They were for the president of FIFA. And I think that's got to be attributed to fans' knowledge of the fight that the U.S. women have been uh, making for better compensation and the, the problems that exist regarding compensation and equal treatment at the international level and by FIFA. Mm. And therefore, uh, fans let the FIFA president know very directly that they thought FIFA could be doing a better job on that front. All right. What's next, John Daly, do you think, for Lindsey Horan and Mallory Pugh, Colorado's members of this team? I'll tell you what, their future is bright. I think most immediately there will be a, a victory tour. They often do that after uh, these World Cup victories, and a victory we're going to expect tour. that soon. Then they'll go, yeah, and then they'll go back to their teams in the NWSL, which is the National Professional Women's League, and that league actually just uh, got a new contract with ESPN, so we'll be able to see them on TV, of course. And then, you know, next year is the Olympics, so a lot of this squad, and I would expect both Lindsey Horan and Mallory Pugh to be uh, mainstays of this team for years to come and for them to be with the group that plays in a year from now at the Olympics in Tokyo. John, thanks for being with us. Great chatting with you. CPR's health reporter John Daly is also a soccer fan and a soccer dad. He spoke to us Sunday by phone. Canals meander all across Colorado, and these man-made waterways have fascinated Behan Maybach ever since she moved to Denver about 20 years ago. She's originally from Turkey, and she asked about this state's canals through Colorado Wonders. CPR's Andrea Dukakis met Maybach at a canal she's particularly fond of. How are you? Nice to meet you. This is Leila Maybach. Hi. How are you? It was a warm, hazy day when I met up with Behan Maybach and her 8-year-old daughter Layla at an irrigation canal. It's right across the street from Layla's school in suburban Lakewood, west of Denver. Houses line the sides of the canal, and we walk down a trail to reach the water. Along the banks, there's lots of tall grass and flowers, and there were even some ducks floating along enjoying the water. It's beautiful, very relaxing. It's very meditative. You know, instead of going to the mountains for a walk, we just walk along. Maybach and her daughter spend a lot of time here. Leila, you collected lots of bugs last time we walked here. Uh, Ladybugs and some water skitters, roly-polies, and we collect lots of wildflowers. Maybach has more than just an amateur interest in the flora and fauna of the canal. She's an ecologist who studies how humans interact with the environment. 
I am very curious about the history of these irrigation canals and um, how people acquired the ownership or the usership of these canals. So to the first part of Maybach's question about the origin of these waterways, we placed a call to Matt Bond, who's head of youth education at Denver Water. We got a request about the canal system. Mm -hmm. So I just want to ask you what I think is a pretty simple question, which is how did they come about? In Colorado, really, because of the lack of natural precipitation that we get, it really is to move water from where it is to where it isn't. Bond says many of these irrigation canals, also known as ditches, were dug in the mid to late 1800s. They started from the very earliest days, whether they were big formal canals in any way or just someone trying to move water 25 yards farther away from the edge of the river to wherever their garden plot was. From garden plots to vast areas of farmland, these waterways made it possible to grow things in parched areas like the Front Range. It's hard to know how many miles of canals there are in Metro Denver. And to Maybach's question about ownership. The rules that apply most places where there's enough precipitation, which is the idea of a riparian water rights system, which means if you own a piece of property along a riverside or a lakeside, you have availability to use that water. In the West, and in Colorado in particular, just because a stream or a canal or a lake happens to be on your property, you may not have the ability to use that water. It's all about water rights, which are complex. Those rights can be sold or inherited, and prices may vary depending on supply and demand. So what if a canal ran right through my backyard? Can I take out just a bucket of water? Nope. Unless you are on that canal as either a contract holder or something to that sort, it would be not legal within the system of water rights for you to take water out of that canal just because it ran by. All of this got us wondering about one very long popular canal that snakes through four counties in Metro Denver. The Highline Canal starts south in Douglas County at Waterton Canyon and goes northeast all the way to Aurora near Denver's airport. The 71-mile corridor was built to serve dozens of farmers along the route. I decided to go check out Waterton Canyon. So I'm here to take a hike to the beginning of the Highline Canal. There are tons of tourists around, hikers, bikers, and it's really a stunningly beautiful place. I can't believe in my 25 years in Colorado, I have never been here. You have to walk a couple of miles to the dam where water from the Platte River gets diverted to the Highline. As for the rest of the 71 miles, some ambitious people have covered the whole trail, mostly walking in sections or riding bikes. The path winds through rural and urban areas, and the trail gets interrupted in places by gaps and road crossings. Next, I drove to a spot on the trail in Denver that's adjacent to a strip mall with a beauty salon and a liquor store. There, I met up with one of the great champions of the Highline Canal, Harriet Lemaire. We're right in the heart of the city of Denver and in the region, and yet this historic trail that was built to bring irrigation water to farmers way back in the 1800s is still here. In truth, the canal has never been ideal for carrying water. There's a lot of seepage and evaporation along the way. 
Today, it's owned by Denver Water and still serves customers, including a cemetery. The water is released for just a few weeks a year in the spring, depending on how wet the season is, and water no longer flows to the end. But Lemaire, who heads up the Highline Canal Conservancy, says the amazing thing is this man-made canal spawned a natural greenway that people get to enjoy. It's being used as a recreational trail and a place of nature for all these people. It's really unique to think, here I am, and yet you were up in Waterton Canyon. We were down in Littleton. We're headed up to Tower Road and Green Valley Ranch, and it's all interconnected. Lemaire wants to improve the trail to reconnect the sections where the trail stops and starts. The plan is to put up signs along the way and share the canal's history. And Lemaire says the group also has plans to manage stormwater in the canal to maintain the corridor's ecosystem and increase water quality. I finished up my tour at the end of the canal near Denver's airport. And you can see it's a prairie out here. I see a night heron over there. There's a lot left to do, especially here where the canal is really just a furrow. But local governments along the entire route are working with Denver Water, Lemaire's group, and even private developers to fix it up piece by piece. And Lemaire envisions a renaissance, a time when the entire path is transformed. There's fun imagining of when the trail is fully completed. One thing you could do is you could rent a bike at DIA and ride your bike all the way to Waterton Canyon. There might be stopping points along the way where you could drop the bike and stay overnight. Maybe there'll be bed and breakfasts that pop up, and maybe we'll be like the Camino Trail in Spain. A little lofty and years down the road, but then so is the original idea to transport enough water from the mountains to grow crops in what's basically a desert. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. What do you wonder about in our state? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What does Colorado smell like? Okay, get the weed jokes out of the way now. Boulder perfumer Don Spencer Hurwitz has won an international award for her scent called Colorado. She spoke to me from her workshop. Don, it occurs to me that one challenge of making a perfume about Colorado is that it not wind up smelling like pine salt. <laughs> yes, that is definitely the number one challenge when designing something that you want to evoke a true pine grove or pine forest using aromatics that have been distilled um, to not have it smell like pine salt or something medicinal, especially because pine salt is a really big thing in the American sort of palette of scents that they would know. So how did you avoid that? So I was really trying to evoke the entirety of walking through a Colorado meadow into the forest. And because there are grasses and fresh air and other deciduous trees, I really focused on the contrast and complement of those elements next to the Colorado blue spruce that I used and other pine kind of notes. Beyond notes, tell us what the actual ingredients are to the extent that you can, and it's not a trade secret. 
Oh, sure. <laughs> well, it would take a long time to give you the entire formula if I were to do so. It's about three pages long. Uh-huh. But some of the main notes were ponderosa pine bark and Colorado blue spruce. Uh, Something called leaf alcohol, which is something that occurs in grasses and all kinds of deciduous leaves. Um, So that gives you a nice fresh green smell. And then there's lemon essential oil and lemon essence, which comes from distilled lemon juice, which gives you something wonderfully fresh and bright like the atmosphere near the pine grove, but in a contrast to that pine. How much of this was inspired by the area immediately around you in Boulder? A lot of it, actually. I really was thinking very much about the Chautauqua area here in Boulder and the Flatirons and how you get that wonderful walk up to the Flatirons, but it's through the fields and it's through a sort of um, open space and it's very atmospheric and there's a meadow with flowers. And then you go up into the mountain and start to smell those trees. So this scent, based on Colorado, uh, won you a golden pear. This is at the 6th Annual Art and Olfaction Awards, given out in Amsterdam. A golden pear. Did you take home a trophy? I did. There is a golden pear trophy here in my studio. (laughs) I wonder why it's called a golden pear. Is that a particularly aromatic fruit? Yeah, I think it's one of those aromatics or it's a fruit that most perfumers really love because it's very delicate and quite tricky actually to do accurately. You talked about the long list of ingredients that actually went into this Colorado fragrance. How much trial and error did you have to do uh, to kind of set that list? Well, the way that I work is generally I get an idea and I pull out absolutely every aromatic I can think of that could possibly be a part of it. And then I start to smell all those pieces and find harmonies and do an editing process. And even with editing, it turned out to be, you know, a three-page design, very complex design. You know, something that didn't make it into the design was actually vanilla. That just seemed like gilding the lily. I often hear, and I'm not sure if this is true, that perfumes, eau de toilettes, respond differently to different people's body chemistries. And this is why a particular perfume might smell different on me than it would you. I I wonder if that's true, first of all. And if so, if you've tried Colorado and if you like it when you wear it. It is true. Definitely body temperature and pH and your hormone balance, your diet, all of these things come out in your skin and affect the way um, a fragrance would work on your skin. And so not every fragrance is going to work on every person. So some things sing and some things are flat or even sometimes get sour or bitter or something. And Yeah, I think that because there's this movement or storytelling in the fragrance design that takes you from something airy and fresh and even a little citrusy green into something very woody and even a little bit sweet and ambery rich, there's something in there for everyone. So I do think that most of the people who have tried out um, Colorado on their skin have loved how it's performed. Does that include you? Does that include me? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, it's been so fascinating as you describe this, almost like scent as a journey. But I I don't think of scent as a place with a point A and a point B. I think of it as like a a stationary 
unchanging thing. I guess that's just not the right way to look at it. Oh, absolutely not. Especially with artisan perfumery, which is what I engage in. From the very beginning, I've been interested in storytelling through aromatics and through wearing perfume. So you might think of it more like a song where it has a starting point and you move into it and you can groove with it. And then at some point it ends. And if you want to enjoy it again, you reapply and you sort of hear the aromatic song again. And is it how it's interacting with the air that gives it that kind of arc? Well, it's in the design, really. So aromatic molecules that are used for perfume making all have a different kind of weight and volatility. So the very introduction, the first spray, if you will, or after applying, those parts are very volatile. And so they come up and they give you a rush and you you get into the fragrance, but then they burn off very quickly. And so as you move through the fragrance or you go through the story, it's taking you also through the volatility layers into the deepest, most tenacious parts. And that's what's called the dry down. And that's the sort of like culmination of the story. Well, Don, thank you for speaking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And you, you make me a regret that radio can't convey scent. <laughs> well, you, that means you'll just have to come and visit me and smell. We need to work on scratch and sniff technology. Okay, we did indeed pay her scent studio a visit. You can see photos later today at CPR.org. That was Don Spencer Hurwitz of Boulder. She recently won a prestigious award for her scent Colorado. She developed it for a company called American Perfumer in Louisville, Kentucky. Artist Charlotte Basson of Golden makes world maps with unexpected materials, flowers, cross-stitch, coins from her travels. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf has the story behind this artist's obsession. To understand how Charlotte Basson came to be obsessed with making world maps, you have to go back to the moment she met the man she would marry. It was on an airplane. Which is very serendipitous because I was a huge traveler in my 20s, and he had just taken a trip around the world. Basically, the kind of stuff you see in a rom-com. I got off the plane and said, this is my future husband. It's not an exaggeration to say Basson is a big traveler. Not long after that faded flight, she went to Australia and New Zealand. She's been all over Europe and Africa. She's lived in Mexico and India and visited every continent except Antarctica. It's on my list, though, (laughs) definitely. But this guy she met on an airplane got her to settle down in Colorado. She was 27 and put aside travel plans to take her first nine-to-five job as a graphic designer. And I realized, I'm going to marry this guy. We're going to have kids, and we're just not going to be able to travel like, like we used to. That difficult realization came at the same time she felt her job wasn't creative enough. And I was like, I'll make world maps. It will keep me connected to the rest of the world. These are artistic world maps, four feet in length and each made from different materials such as thousands of tiny little cutout pieces of paper that I cut from magazines and catalogs. She's used flowers, river rocks, and shells. An old rusty bike chain, and it outlined the continents, and then I used graphite to draw within the continents. She's also making one with coins from her travels. I've done one that was cross-stitch on burlap. (laughs) She still has the first artistic map she made. And it was filled with what I call doodles. Black ink doodles that she's done habitually all her life. They fill in the land, leaving the water of the map bare. 
She uses a custom-made metal template of the continents for these maps. It hangs on her wall, and she takes it down to trace it when she starts a new work. When did it progress to, shall we say, obsession? Well, in about a decade, I made about 20 maps. I did it in my free time. I did it when I had babies, and it was just my escape. And I'd say it became an obsession when I quit my job and decided to make 100 maps in 100 days. (laughs) That was two years ago. She made those 100 maps, and it's no longer just a creative side hustle. It's her job. She said she has at least 100 more ideas. Lately, she's been experimenting with abstract expressionism. The post-World War II art movement often associated with the likes of Jackson Pollock and Clifford Still. It's paint and collage and figure drawing in it. All of her maps are created without what she calls political boundaries. They're just the continents. People started asking me, oh, will you make me a map of the United States? Will you make me a map of Wisconsin? And I said, oh, no, I can't do that. That's right. She has said no to paying gigs because she's trying to share a very clear message with her art. That no matter where you go, we are all human. We have similar kind of basic needs of love and safety and freedom. Once we start putting in those boundaries, you feel the separation and the difference. And now her art is supporting her ability to continue to travel the world. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.